the way that I think about my role, and I've always thought about it this way, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, is I'm always trying to offload what I'm doing to someone else, right? So I can do the next thing. And I, I joke with my manager, the manager I have on my team here, and I'm like, I want you to have my job tomorrow. And so the responsibilities that I have today, I'm constantly trying to train you know, him or whoever it is that works with me to be able to do those things. Hey everyone, I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Process Makes Perfect. As always, we're talking with experts in process creation, automation, and delegation, basically the people that make business easier. Neha is an experienced operation and strategy leader on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list who's helped some of California's most successful startups, including The Honest Company and Beats by Dre. Can't wait to hear those stories. After working on a number of key partnerships and transactions for Beats, including the sale to Apple, Neha moved on to the augmented reality startup Daiquiri before her current role as business, uh, a director of business operations at Gum Gum Sports, where she's helped scale the operations team from six to a team of 24. Neha loves building teams from scratch, establishing shared vision, optimizing organizational structures, and creating and testing new processes. So obviously, we're all going to love her. Neha, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Can this business thrive without the owner? You've got to start putting systems and processes in place. If you don't use the systems, the business will break. We're always looking to buy back our time. You cannot say something once and expect that it actually is received. This is the way we work. A big motivation in that for me is creating a job for myself that I really enjoy. This is how you discover your vision. And this is Process Makes Perfect. There is so much in your intro there, in your bio, <laughs> that I want to dig into. So, so let's catch up and, and you know, fill me in and fill everyone in that's listening. Tell us about your background. You've worked at some pretty impressive companies. Right. So um, I would say my foray into the startup space was definitely non-traditional. Um, when I, I went to undergrad at UCLA and did a master's in econ with an emphasis in finance at USC and thought I wanted to go into finance and was looking at positions in investment banking and, and just traditional finance roles. And I did an internship and hated it. And I think I cried every day <laughs> and realized that that was not for me. And I was coming up on graduation and didn't know what I really didn't know what I wanted to do and was very confused. And I had a friend who, um, you know, introduced me to the honest company and the way he presented it was, there's this baby products company that just Galba starting. <laughs> Are you interested? <laughs> and, you know, fresh out of school, did, definitely didn't have an interest in baby products, but, you know, thought just Galba was cool. And she was co-founding the startup with another, um, with Brian Lee, who I was familiar with in Los Angeles as having started legal zoom and shoot Dazzle. So, yeah. um, I was fortunate enough to join the team before they launched and was there for about a year. And that's where I like to say I got the startup bug. And so ever since then, you know, my passion has been joining businesses really in their earlier stages, really and helping think about how to scale, you know, critical parts of the organization. Um, and, you know, that has taken on a whole lot of different forms as the different roles I've, I've come into. But I think most recently I've been specifically focused on the operations um, side of business. So my last two roles here at Gum Gum Sports and prior to that, Daiquiri, have been um, in operations. That's great. Well, I can't wait to weave through your career in this conversation. I'm sure we'll get a lot of good nuggets. So 
Back to the Honest Company, let's start there with the startup bug. I have two little ones at home, so I get a box of Honest products delivered to my house once a month. I read that you were were behind setting up the customer service team. Can you talk a little bit about how you went from kind of nothing to building out that structure? Right. So, you know, when we started, um, customer service was something that the founding team was very passionate about. And um, they knew from the forefront that that would be a core part of the DNA of the business. Um, before we anyone started at the business, we were all required to read um, Delivering Happiness. Um, uh, by great t- book. I love yeah, that. and so you know that was the required reading for anyone that was starting at the at the business, and I think that was the case for a really long time, may still be today. And so again, that just shows the the passion that the that the founding team had around what customer service would be. And I would say, from you know, again, taking a step back from my perspective, when I started Honest, you know, I had. Um, I had a different perspective of customer service. You know, for me, I was imagining, you know, the the person on the end of the line, probably sitting overseas. I was just picking up calls, you know, didn't like their job and was just trying to get through, you know, a preset set of answers and, and get you off the phone. Um, the way that the Honest Company approached customer service was really different. It was more of a, you know, relationship building with our core customers. And at that early stage of the business, you know, there was a clear understanding of who our customer was. Um, It was, you know, we had a very clear profile of the type of mom and dad that was interested in a product like Honest. And we set up our early customer service processes to cater to that kind of a mom and dad. And so, you know, we're really educated on on product, really educated on kind of new trends in the space of, you know, organic products. And then also, you know, doing little things like sending cards and writing handwritten letters and following up on email and checking in on how a pregnancy is going or how kids are doing and really establishing that personal connection. So I know from my experience, when you're building out customer success and customer service, as the company evolves, you get these great ideas like, oh, why don't we send them a card? How do you capture those ideas and make sure they end up in your processes or your documentation so that everyone is doing things the same way? Yeah, I would say the way that we did it at Honest was really through hiring. Um, so again, it came, you know, we, when we were hiring out the customer success team or customer service team at that time, we were hiring, you know, fresh grads right out of school um, who, you know, were just eager and hungry and wanted to get their foot in the door and be able to work with, you know, a celebrity like Jessica Alba. And so yeah. we were getting, you know, we were, we were hiring for and making very clear in the beginning what we would be expecting that those folks to do. Honestly, I would say a lot of it came, um, that desire to do things like send cards and handwritten notes came from, you know, people's personal desires, right? And they were, those were things they wanted to do as they built relationships with their early customers. Now that's easy when you have a handful of customers, right? But as you scale it, you know, that is something that we try to incorporate as a a bit more process oriented of, you know, why don't, you know, select a handful of customers and really follow them through their journey and just make it a little bit more, um, you know, just kind of make it a little easier to manage, you know, some of those things. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So let's go from uh, one celebrity founder to the next celebrity founder with uh, Beats by Dre. So h- how did you make that transition? What was that opportunity? Yeah, so I had been at the Honest Company for a little, about a year, and I had no plans to leave. And, um, you know, I was having a really great time there. And I was um, reached out to by a recruiter and um, found out that they were looking to expand their strategy and business development team. And, you know, funny enough, I actually didn't know anything about Beats by Dre at the time. (laughs) Um, 
luckily I had my brother over when the recruiter reached out and and I asked him, I'm like, what's Beats by Dre? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was crazy. And, you know, he was like, go on the Facebook page or just Google and <laughs> find out, you know, you know, this headphone company that's blowing up. So um, I joined when the company was going through an interesting transition. They were going from having um, been a licensing business with Monster Cable to, you know, bringing all operations in-house to being mm. its own, you know, wholly owned org- organization. So really interesting transition time. And I think, you know, a licensing business require didn't require much in terms of, you know, people. I think Beats was around maybe 30 to 50 people um, as a part of Monster. Yeah. But as you're bringing operations in-house, you know, the business was scaling very quickly. I think when I joined, we're at about 100 people. And when I think about the point of acquisition, we're at about 600. So very fast growth in three years. So just, you know, that same kind of hockey stick, really kind of cool, interesting growth that, you know, we were, I think Beats was just right, right place, right time. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, for anyone that's listening audio only, I'm wearing my Beats headphones right now. So, uh, so I've touched two, I'm two for two on your companies. I love it. How, as as you were going from 100 to 600 people in the company, you're obviously expanding products, you're rolling out products, you're going into new markets. H- how do you do that in an organized way? As someone that's operationally focused, pro- uh, you know, process focused, how, how did you even go about that? So I think one of, um, you know, one of the things that the leadership team had foresight to do was to expand the leadership team, right? And bring in um, folks that had experience at much larger organizations. And so, um, you know, one of those um, hires was my boss, actually. And she was our general counsel and head of strategy. And she came from VF and had been general counsel there. And when, when she came in, one of the things we did as a team is she started to um, plant the seeds for doing things like insight development, consumer research, market research. And that was, interestingly enough, something we had not done to date. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll say, you know, using data, do, using research and, um, and using research that we had available to make decisions was something that was actually very new for, for the leadership team. To date, you know, they had, the, you know, they felt like they had a good pulse on culture. You know, Jimmy Iovine is head of um, Interscope Records and really has pretty much every and any major artists under his belt. And so, you know, they felt like they had a good grasp on where we should be. But again, like you said, when you're expanding to new markets and you're building out your product line, you know, there has to be more rigor around how you're making decisions. And I think the development of an insights and research team really helped do that. So that's great. You, you, as a company grows, I think it's important you bring in people that are experienced, they've done this before, they can bring that knowledge to the business. Now, what about as people are being promoted from within? How do you make sure that the knowledge that someone gained in one position can transfer effectively to the person that's going to replace them in that role? Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you saw that at all, or if if maybe it's easier to answer as you transitioned from company to company, what was that process like of buttoning up all the, the, the things that you did for the next person? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of the way, I mean, personally, I'll just answer personally, the way that I think about my role and I've always thought about it this way. And I don't know if it's right or wrong is I'm always trying to offload what I'm doing to someone else. 
right? So I can do the next thing. And I, I joke with my manager, the manager I have on my team here, and I'm like, I want you to have my job tomorrow. And so the responsibilities that I have today, I'm constantly trying to train you know, him or whoever it is that works with me to be able to do those things. That one enables me to be able to move on to new tasks. And you know what, if I if I need to move on quickly, or things change, it, there is there's less of that kind of painful transition. And second, it helps the team around me expand their skill sets, you know, be able to have a better um, understanding of one, what I do, and also just bring that fresh perspective into things that I'm doing on a daily basis. All right, guys, taking a quick break here to ask you for a quick favor. If you like what you hear on the show, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. And if you snap a screenshot of your review and you send it to me at Chris Ronzio or at Trainual on any social media platform, we'll send you a free Process Makes Perfect t-shirt and some other swag. We'd love to hear what you think. Okay, back to the show. Absolutely. I love that answer. I agree wholeheartedly. It's like, if you want to grow and you want to be free to take on opportunities, then this gives you the most flexibility to train people as you go. Exactly. Now, so you were at the company through the transition, the transition to Apple. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have aspirations of selling a company mm -hmm. or, or, you know, getting acquired. How did the cultures merge through that 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 transition, and and what was it like to combine Beats by Dre's playbook with Apple's playbook in a sense? Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, um, I encounter people who have gone through a lot of acquisitions, and that was my first. And um, you know, it was for me it felt like a very painful process. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it depends on who the acquirer is, right? Um, Apple has its own very strong culture. And there's such a large, massive corporation that they had, they wanted to keep beats as is, you know, they wanted beats to con continue with the magic that we had, and, you know, the, the cultural relevance that we had without, you know, being too involved with, um, and getting influenced by Apple. But, since they're such a large organization, I don't think they could help themselves. <laughs> and so, you know, very quickly, we were pretty much swallowed whole. And I think one of the interesting things on that, too, is like just for perspective, in terms of revenue, you know, Beats was topping $1.5 billion. And we we were like a decimal point for Apple, right? And so mm -hmm. for us and our grand scale things or, you know, our, from our perspective, we felt like we were, you know, a big player in, in, in our space. But when you're acquired by a company of that size, you're really non-existent. You're like a line, you know, a subline in the accessories category. And, you know, you know, that's the, your perspective and your position within a company changes. So I think we got swallowed whole. Um, I think the Apple culture and the Beats culture were very different, right? Mm -hmm. As you can probably imagine, um, Apple Val, uh, Apple, you know, sits in the valley. Um, it's folk a lot of, on average, the tenure is very long for people that have worked there. Um, so I was sitting in meetings with the operations team and, you know, people would introduce themselves and most people had been there 10 years, 15 years, you wow. know, and at beats, if you had been there for more than three years, you were an old timer, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, there's, there's that, there's that difference. Um, you know, we were used to kind of moving fast and not really following a lot of processes and rules and just trying to make things happen. And that was, we were purposely built that way operationally because, you know, our head of marketing and our executive team wanted to be able to, you know, quickly develop a headphone or quickly develop a product with 
a relevant artist or a relevant athlete. And so yeah. we purposely kept our processes very nimble. And then as when, when we were, you know, moving towards Apple's processes, those are very different. So, you know, I think culturally speaking, very different process wise, very different. I don't think two more different companies could have come together. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, in tr if you look at it from the outside in very successful transaction and very successful outcome for beats for beats by Dre and, and, you know, who knows what the future would have been otherwise. But I think as a person, as a part of the person that helped you know, build that organization, build that culture, you know, you, you see all of that change almost overnight. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's almost like the death of a company in the way that you've known it and it becomes something else. And either you're on that train and interested in continuing um, to be a part of that new organization, whatever it may be, or, you know, you, you move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everyone heard about that acquisition. It was big news. Do you have any sense of whether the valuation was driven entirely by brand and the celebrity of the thing, or was there some value in the systems and the, in the, the, the processes that, that have been developed behind the scenes? Yeah, I think, you know, what, what was interesting for Beats, um, you know, and the, again, the leadership team, Jimmy, and um, having worked in the music industry, he developed products in response to what he was seeing in the industry, right? So he, headphones were, you know, he wanted consumers to have a better way to listen to, to music and higher quality music. And um, then also, you know, made a small acquisition, started developing a, a streaming platform, right? And I think... Again, that understanding and that foresight of I see these trends, I see these changes, and I'm going to develop a product in response to it um, really helped put Beats at the forefront of a lot of those changes. So, um, you know, I think for Apple, I think it was a lot, you know, it was a bunch of different things. It's, you have this incre incredibly diverse leadership team and executive team. You know, you get Jimmy Iovine, you get Dr. Dre, um, you know, and you get our the seasoned executive team that was there. Um, but then you also get Apple Music. Right. So, you know, for them, it's they have a product in the accessories um, wearable space and they're looking to expand that. And, you know, they get access to a different demographic and, you know, they're figuring out iTunes and their software on that end. And Apple Music gives or Beats Music, sorry, gave them kind of an interesting foray and, and access to a different demographic. And that kind of network effect of having, you know, the chairman of Interscope be a part of your leadership team. Yeah. I think just watching as an outsider, you know, you see businesses build that are around celebrity or around amazing brand and, and partnerships like that. And I've worked with celebrities in, in that kind of capacity. And it's almost like they're visionaries that just blaze the path. But the business works because of the systems that everyone else is running, right? That the economics work because of the system. So I'm sure they were... They're thankful for uh, for people like you making it happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so let's move into Daiquiri, the last company you were with. Um, I I saw that there was a, a a layoff or a restructuring, and I know that's not easy for anyone. So can you can you talk through how how you approached that decision and and thought about it? Yeah. Um, so you know. For Daiquiri, it was a very, it was an interesting experience. And I think even taking a step back, right, the augmented reality space and even where it's at today, um, you see a lot of, um, you see a lot of movement in the space with who's in there and kind of the rise and fall. And you have the magic leaps where people are kind of scratching their heads and wondering what's going on. But I think for Daiquiri, you know, 
I guess taking a step back, when I started, you know, there was this vision of how do we enter the enterprise space um, with an augmented reality product, and we want to have a very specific use case for that customer. And so there was no interest in consumer. You know, we we understood that this was going to be a very expensive product, a clunky product, and enterprise is the right right first step. Um, you know, it was a hardware product. And so I was familiar working at Beats with hardware. I knew it was very capital intensive and um, difficult. And so, you know, one of the first things I looked at is, you know, investment profile, how much money raised and, and all that, because with a hardware product, that's the most important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a hardware product that hasn't been released, that's one of the most important factors to consider. And I would give that advice to anyone looking to join a hardware company. Um, and, you know, for me, the company had raised quite a bit of money and it looked like, there was some positive movement and POCs out there. And, um, you know, I think the issue that we had was a combination of, um, you know, it, it was a timing thing. Again, I go back to timing is really important. Um, the space is not there yet for a product like a, a Daiquiri headset or a Daiquiri helmet. And, you know, we continue to be partnering with innovation teams and and developing POCs, but to be a part of a day-to-day, um, the day-to-day for a worker, like we were still far away from that, from that. And so as a result of that, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of decisions made in terms of, you know, how hiring and then, you know, what were the teams that were actually necessary and, and all of that came down to money, right? You have $10 left in the bank. Like what can you do with $10 that you have? And, you know, those are the, the decisions that we had to make was, you know, this is the runway that we have and um, what are the necessary functions that we need to have to to be able to continue and, you know, potentially raise more money. So, so I remember when I was consulting and I would go into a company and say, you know, I'm here to improve processes and streamline things. It was always a concern. People would look at me and be like, you're here to get rid of me, aren't you? And that was never the case, but that was the perception that process improvement means kind of, you know, trimming the fat or getting rid of things. So how do, how do you avoid that perception and make the process role a more positive thing in the business? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, I think, there's no two ways about it. I think when I left, I felt like the Grim Reaper. <laughs> but you know, I think ways that that you can do that in a more tactful way is obviously, you know, engaging with and building relationships with members of the team, right? So often as a process improvement person or a consultant, like you said, you know, you're coming in from the outside. You maybe work, let's say you partner with IT, um, you know, you're not day in, day out working with the IT members, but you're there to help understand their processes, understand the software um, tools that they're using, and and again, just trying to figure out ways that they work. So, I would say letting the team come to you with ideas versus, um, you know, presenting or you know forcing your ideas and improvements back on the team. And so that was a lot of my strategy. It was just yeah. it was working with the team, letting them come up with the ideas, and just helping and being seen as someone that can help, that can help get, you know resources, which may not be the right word, or just help get outside support for moving things along. But, you know, I think I was lucky enough at Daiquiri where every team I engaged with was clear that there were improvements that needed to be made, right? No one, no one came to the the meetings and said, yeah, everything's working perfectly. And, Mm. you know, we don't, we don't need to cut anything. There was kind of a collective understanding that changes had to be made. I think the last, last note on that is, um, I think support for initiatives like that comes from the top, right? So, 
whether it be your CEO or CFO or whoever, you know, is, is kind of presenting that to the, to the company and letting them know like, Hey, we are, we are a startup. We're constantly looking for ways to improve and, um, you know, improve and cut our costs. And so, you know, that is an effort that we all have to undertake and kind of that think like a business owner and, and think of yeah. how would you run your own business? Yeah, I think anyone that's improving processes in an organization or being tasked with doing that or anyone that's good at it is a good listener because yeah. you you have to be able to listen, right, to, to what's going on and let people come to the conclusions that things are broken so that you can then be constructive and help fix it rather than you attacking someone's way of doing it. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, if it's about the attitude and it's about people feeling comfortable and if they don't, then they're not going to, you're not going to have that dialogue and you're not going to make any changes. So, um, you know, I think connecting with people at the end of the day for all of these, you know, any type of process improvement is the most important, um, step in getting anything done. Right. Okay. So let's look forward. Now you're at gum gum sports, uh, new role and you're, you've got some big goals ahead. So how do you chunk down those big goals and make sure that you've got milestones and things actually happen? Yeah. So I am a big believer in OKRs, um, which is just some management methodology. I read a book. Um, I was recommended a book a couple of years ago, uh, Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And um, it had a huge Im- impact on me, actually. And for me, what I loved about the book is it was it's a very simple framework. Um, and I think it can be used in the workplace. It could be used to manage your teams. It can be used on a personal level if you have personal goals that you're trying to achieve. And so what I have found is, um, you know, I use OKRs at gum gum sport and, you know, I get really positive feedback from my team and, and um, OKR just so everyone listening knows is. So uh, the O stands for objective and KR stands for key results. So essentially at a very high level, what, what you're asked to do is you put together an objective. So let's say I want to lose five pounds is your objective, right? And your key results are very specific. You know, you have three to five key results per objective and they're very specific. Um, they're measurable and they have a deadline. So it can be things like sign up for the gym by, you know, Friday, August 23rd and, you know, go to the gym three times the week of August 25th. So very, very specific. Um, they have, they're very measurable and you can, you know, look back at them, grade them and see whether you achieve success. So, um, you know, generally when working with my team, I'll ask them to put together a minimum of three objectives. One, you know, one that's relevant to their current day to day, one that's a reach goal. So something that, you know, they probably won't accomplish, but is, you know, overly is a bit ambitious and then a personal goal. So, you know, run a half marathon or whatever it is that they personally are trying to do in their life. And, um, I've just found it to be a tool that empowers each individual to, to stay true to the goals that they want to achieve. Um, and as a manager, I'm just kind of checking in on it and from time to time, even like once a month, I'll look and say, Hey, you know, how's your half marathon training going? And you know, a person be like, Oh, haven't started, but you know, let's, Mm -hmm. so then I'll be like, let's shift the dates and you know, let's get back on track with that. So that's great. So set goals, set milestones or objectives and key results, whatever language you use, make sure there's something, uh, uh, scheduled and then you just stay, uh, hold people accountable. Right. Yeah, that's right. Perfect. Well, uh, as as I look back and 
and and look at your amazing career so far and jumping from place to place i think a a, a great lesson is to always be training your replacement and i think <laughs> a, a, anyone should, should listening should take that away that you know regardless of what you're doing today make sure you've got that written down got that playbook got other people cross trained because if you want to be free to take on the next exciting opportunity and not leave your company in a bad place that's the way to do it right absolutely, absolutely. is there Anything else you'd like to share with with everyone listening? No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think you're absolutely right in terms of documentation and um, ways that I go about that. Last note on that is one of the things I've found to be really powerful is as I hire, I have new hires um, redo our training documentation. <laughs> so nice. I we just had a training right just about an hour ago, and um, I had one of our newest hires and an old hire, you know, do a train, do the training. And I think I found that's the best way to keep your materials up to date, fresh and, um, you know, make it so that someone new can understand them. I love it. Neha, I totally agree. So have your newest hires give advice on, uh, on, on your training materials because it's fresh to them. They can fill in the gaps. I love it. So right. great advice. Uh, if people are looking to connect with you, where can they find you? So the best place is on LinkedIn, actually. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn um, under my name, Neha Gupta. And um, you know, feel free to reach out or send a message. And I love connecting with, with new folks and new industries every day. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being on Process Makes Perfect. And really appreciate the advice. Thank you, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening to Process Makes Perfect. If you're listening on your earbuds, on a run, in the car, we also have a version on YouTube. So if you wanna see this in color video with me interviewing all these great guests, check it out on YouTube. Just search Chris Ronzio and you'll find my channel on there. If you found this helpful, we'd love for you to leave a review or rate the podcast. If you found the information valuable, please share it with a friend, a family member, or anyone else you think could benefit from the information. Remember to connect with me at Chris Ronzio on all social media platforms or the company at Trainual. That's train U-A-L, like a training manual, everywhere that you want to follow us. Thanks again for watching or listening, and we hope to see you next time.